What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Schramm, and you are listening and watching another amazing episode of Untold Stories, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, some of my friends, really cool people, Bitcoin OGs, those who have been around the block a really long time to truly understand how this movement came to be, where we are right now, and where we are going. And to celebrate uh, my 300th episode, I actually had asked a friend of mine, Bob Williams, who is the host of the Sarasota Stories podcast, to interview me because sometimes I feel like uh, I don't talk enough. <laughs> I know you guys are listening or like, <laughs> Charlie, talk too much sometimes. But um, I... I uh, like to support independent media and other podcasters, so uh, I thought the episode was great and you guys would really enjoy it. He's just starting his show out, um, but I thought he was a really good host. He's got a very good radio voice. Bob Williams is an amazing guy. He's been in the libertarian world for decades, decades, and decades. Truly understands socioeconomics and politics on a very deep level. Uh, he was a commodore of our local yacht club, which is where I met him and we instantly became friends and with his family, and they've they really been such a great, great, great people. Um, we covered some really cool topics like uh, what some people don't know about me, how I got into Bitcoin and kind of growing up in the Bitcoin world, where I first heard about it and like that aha moment. Um, talk, kind of talked about the events of the day, the crypto and crisis event that I just hosted, uh, what Courtney and I were doing at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, we talked about so many different, really, really cool topics that I like when other hosts are interviewing because they ask the questions that sometimes I don't think about. So enjoy the show, and I will uh, just finish editing another epic episode with Chad and Eric Voorhees that you guys are going to really enjoy in a few days from now. So I'll see you all in a little bit. Good morning, Sarasota. This is episode 50. Sarasota never ceases to amaze me. It is a small city, or a large town if you prefer, and yet the diversity of fascinating people is really incredible. So on our 50th episode, I'm happy to introduce to you one of the most fascinating people I've ever met, a true pioneer of the cryptocurrency craze. I'm Bob Williams, host of the Sarasota Stories podcast. I believe to get to know your neighbors better, it's a must to hear their stories. In fact, that's why I created this podcast. I started it so that you can get connected just a little deeper in this wonderful community we call home. In each episode, I interview our neighbors who are doing great work and impacting our town in positive ways. So you'll hear from authors, artists, entrepreneurs, civic leaders, and influencers share how they chose their profession, what they're working on now, and what their plans are for the future. I'm very pleased to introduce a friend of mine who has accomplished much in his short life. His name is Charlie Shrim, host of the Untold Stories podcast, which focuses on all things cryptocurrency. And it's no wonder, because Charlie was at the very beginning when Bitcoin was just getting started back in 2011. He helped create some of the original foundations and exchanges to bring Bitcoin into the mainstream. In today's episode, Charlie will share what's one thing most people don't know about him, what it was like growing up in Brooklyn, how he first heard about Bitcoin and what was his aha moment, how he ended up in Sarasota. Also, if he thinks Sarasota is becoming a hub for cryptocurrency entrepreneurs, as some believe, what is a crypto in crisis event he recently hosted, what he and his wife Courtney were doing recently at the famous Cannes Film Festival in France, where to find out more about the work Charlie is doing and much, much more. Thank you so much for sharing just a little piece of your life with us today. And it is my hope you will listen, learn, and connect. Charlie Shrem, a name synonymous with Bitcoin and blockchain. Welcome to the Sarasota Stories podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, Charlie, one of the things I like to ask people at the beginning of the episode to share with my listeners is, what's one thing that most people don't know about you? One thing that most people don't know about me is I am a guitar player. I've been playing guitar since I was like 13 years old, but I stopped talking about it because for some reason, like I felt like everyone started playing guitar. So I didn't really, it didn't make me feel unique anymore. So I just kept to myself playing. Uh, and sometimes around here in Sarasota, I've been seen to play on some, some stages. I played, oh, I've also played harmonica and I've played harmonica and some open mic nights with just bands that have shown up there. That's a good thing about 
playing music is that you can just meet people and start playing music with them and you make this beautiful work of art. Well, that is cool. Uh, well, I don't play the guitar, but I do have a hankering to learn how to play the harmonica. And I think it's, I mean, that's one thing I love about Sarasota. It's a small town. You can meet people and you do stuff like this. And I did not know that. And uh, so, so do you do this often or just whenever you get a chance? I have, you know, my two guitars over there. And I've been listening to a lot of bluegrass music lately. Yeah. So I wanted to start playing the banjo or something like that, or maybe the violin, like the fiddle. <laughs> but then I met a guy who's like a drummer who he's been drumming at Coachella, which is this big, big music festival. Yeah, yeah. And he's a drummer. He was a, he played last year with a band. And I said, "Well, how long have you been playing?" He said, nine months." His name is Snake. He's an amazing guy. I met him at the at the Cannes Film Festival, actually, and he. Uh, he showed me this like banjo guitar that's like a Dixie guitar, but it plays like a banjo and I, it's like a crossover, like a hybrid. So I really want to get this, but uh, the supply chain issues, it's been on back order. Uh, yeah. like but I want one because then you can, I can play bluegrass, but I don't have to learn a new instrument. You're originally from Brooklyn and you are into bluegrass music. That blows <laughs> me away. We live in the South now, so you're kind of happy. <laughs> I grew up in the Cincinnati area, so I was real close to Kentucky and Southern Ohio there. And so, yeah, I came across it pretty frequently. I figured maybe the blues you would be into, because blues is definitely an American uh, original, a lot of blues yeah. and jazz, but uh, bluegrass, that's very cool. Well, I good listen for you, to man. a lot of music, and whatever comes up, you know, is really good. Well, I already mentioned that you uh, are from Brooklyn and whatnot. Give our listeners some broad strokes background of kind of your formative years, since you're kind of known as, as the Bitcoin guy. But but before you get to that, give us some broad strokes of your background, where you grew up, and and uh, just kind of lay give that lay of the land. All right. So I grew up in, in, in Brooklyn, New York, a very religious community, uh, was studying to be like either like a rabbinical student or working at, you know, your father's company type of thing and um, very insular type of community. But those who like live within it, love it. It's, it's a wonderful place to be. And a lot of people live like very bright, happy lives that sure. really like enjoy it. But um, uh, I went to yeshiva for like 12 years for very long hours a day and um, went to college like, uh, Unlike, I was actually the first member of my family to go to college, which I thought was really cool. In hindsight, wow. I'm thinking about it. But at the time, it wasn't a big deal because no one really cared to go to college in my family. So it wasn't like, oh, big deal. Like, you know, it was no one else really cared to go. I, in hindsight, now they're like, yeah, we wish we could have gone, but whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, so did that, but I felt that it wasn't very happy kind of growing up in that community. So um, I was always struggling to to get financially independent and to do different things. I had a startup when I was in high school and college, I was selling uh, electronics and cameras and things like that on online. It was a uh, dailycheckout.com. It was a really great company, a lot of fun and um, paid my way through college through that, try to get, you know, that whole financial independence. And when I was in, this was like around 2010 when I was in maybe a junior in college, I, I fell into a chat room and lo and behold, like Satoshi and the original uh, early Bitcoin developers were all hanging out talking about this like Bitcoin thing. And uh, I was really in the right place at the right time. Uh, I didn't know Bitcoin from any other type of, you know, the year was early 2011 now. So no one was talking about maybe a few dozen people in the world were talking about Bitcoin. I'm still friends with those, some of those people um, today. And one thing led to another. I was starting the first bitcoin company uh called BitInstant, and yep. um that was like my first propellant out of the brooklyn world onto the world center stage because we were the first uh the first venture-backed bitcoin startup in the whole world uh this was uh, this was now mid 2011 and so i was frequently leaving the community traveling to places like china and the uk and europe and all over the u.s uh to give talks and i was like 20 years old or 21 years old. And so I was getting this very like, and I had my co-founders who was starting the company with me. I was being pulled in a, in two different worlds into the religious conservative world right. that I grew up in. And I was pulled into the uh, anarcho-capitalist libertarian world that I really fell in love with. And these are still like people that I hold very dear to me today. Those who are 
involved in the Mises Institute and the Brownstone Institute yep. and people that I just love. And they were like being the family that I never really felt I had. And uh, this was like the Bitcoin love was kind of going through all that at the same time. And um, uh, started the Bitcoin Foundation, which was such a, a crazy experience because I was doing I was in Austria just being in the trenches with electronics and building out like this Bitcoin card type thing. And I was making some amazing friends and doing some amazing things. And this story has been written about in the book, Bitcoin Billionaires by, right. by uh, what's his name, by Ben Masaryk. That's being made into a movie and Digital Gold by Nathaniel Popper. I like the Bitcoin Billionaires one personally better. But um, we did all that stuff. And then. Uh, I was back in New York and and uh, the world was discovering Bitcoin at the time. It was getting very big, very, very quickly. This was now 2013. I met my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, Courtney. And we're living in above a nightclub that we had owned with a bunch of other early Bitcoin OGs <laughs> uh, I, out of my parents' basement. My parent, you know, my family and would like. OG, make sure that's original gangster, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's old guard, old guard. Oh, I thought it was original gangster. It, it depends on who, what, what <laughs> circles you're talking to. So, All right, so you're above the nightclub. Go ahead. Above the nightclub, uh, you know, my family would like stake out the entrance of our apartment and the entrance of the nightclub, just try to bring me back to Brooklyn, so the religious community. Wow. There was a lot of like push-pull. They didn't like Courtney and things like that. Um. And, you know, I was kind of at the peak, at the height of my life at the time. Um, I was making a lot of money. I wasn't in any debt. I had this great girl. I was living above this club that I was running, that at least I was eating and drinking for free, although the club was losing money. It's very hard to make money in that business. And then my whole world came crashing down. This is like, so now we're talking like seven years ago now. Uh, I got arrested and coming home from a, from a Bitcoin conference in, in Netherlands. I was giving a talk on behalf of the Bitcoin Foundation and I got arrested um, by the federal government uh, at the airport coming home. And it was like, a, that's a crazy traumatic experience. Ended up having to like uh, face federal charges, my uh, go back to my parents' basement because they were the only ones who would, the government would let me out if I had a bail. Right, uh, and my parents were the only ones to put that willing to do it, and the conditions were that we, Courtney and I, break up, and I go back to my parents' house. So here I am back from square one, and I worked all those years to try to get out of of that world, and um, it just yeah, must have been crazy. just 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 terrible, right? I'm sure. So we're secretly dating and everything like that, of course, and we're staying together, and I'm facing these charges. You know, essentially, we had this. Uh, uh, we had a company similar to like Coinbase or Voyager or any of these other ways that you can buy and sell Bitcoin. Yeah. And these were very early days at the time. And I allowed one of our customers, I knew I was running customer service because right. I was like the only employee. We were like 30% to understand like where we were, Mark. We were the only Bitcoin company selling retail. There was one other exchange called Mt. Gox, but we were 30%. Our company was like 30% of the global Bitcoin transactional volume. So one in three transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain were originating from our company. We're the only way to buy and sell Bitcoin at the time. Um, and one of our customers uh, was re-buying Bitcoin from us and reselling them on Silk Road, which was at the time running, uh, was this place you can buy like all these different type underground like type of eBay. Is, what, what, is, what is the Silk Road exactly? Silk Road was this on this marketplace that existed on like the dark web where you can buy and sell uh, all types of drugs. Although I think I think my lawyer did the study. It was like 80% of it was cannabis and stuff like that. Right. Like fake IDs and other types of drugs. Like essentially what Mark Cuban is doing now with the his pharmaceutical company, how you can go on and buy, you know, insulin for very, for like cents on the dollars or like the Canadian government sells cannabis on their online marketplace. This was like 10 years ago. So this predated all of that, the Silk Road. But they put the guy who created Silk Road, they put him away for like six life sentences or something like that, like yep. just for running this marketplace. And I got caught up in all that because um, we had one customer who was like reselling Bitcoin on that Silk Road. Like not me. It was it was him. But I, I knew about it. Were there um, were, were there a lot of people then that were caught doing this and, and served sentences? I mean, were you one? No, of, I was the only people? one. Huh? Except for Ross, really. Yeah. 
So was the the district attorney trying to uh, put a feather in their cap by? There's so many. There's so many like you know things I could say. Yeah. So many judges that I have had lunch with after. Thankfully, I had a great judge who I I hold so much respect for him because I immediately knew I was guilty. There was an email that I'd written saying like I you know I knew this guy because I he was like I was customer service and he was backlogging our customer service emails with just like, Hey, where's my Bitcoin one day? And I was like, Oh, don't, you know, stop, stop emailing us. I know you're selling, reselling our Bitcoin anyways on Silk Road. So, you know, that, that got me sentenced to like two years in, in federal prison when I'm like 22 years old or something like that. And so, and so just so our listeners know, of course, I know you and Courtney, uh, and I just do want to kind of, put a, 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 for lack of a better term, a shout out to Courtney, a lesser woman would have left her man during those two years of uh, being separated and whatnot. And I just always thought that was very highly of her that she stuck it out with you and you, went through those, and you went through those two years and now you guys have been married and you, you live in Sarasota and are doing some really, really cool things. And I, you know, I, I mentioned it at, at the beginning. I, I'm, I'm really curious to find out what happened in Cannes, uh, the film festival. And but before we get there, something I've always been wanting to ask you. So you're, you're a college student. You go into this forum. Was there an aha moment where you saw that this could be something big? Because my background, I was a gold guy. I mean, I was, I was a second, I used to say I was a second generation gold bug and whatnot because my dad was, and I remember when, you know, Nixon closed the gold window and all that back in 71. And so, and there was always concern about the currency that we have. And so finding alternatives has been, you know, the question, but were you kind of of that mindset when you, you were in that forum and you're like, well, wait a second, this is an alternative alternative type of currency and this could be something big did you have that aha moment definitely did you know the fact that no one it's funny actually i remember looking at it and i never thought of myself as this as like a very particular smart or uh type of person or good at any particular thing or even someone who can problem solve better than other people. I always felt I was just an average middle of the road person. I was totally okay with that. But here I am and I'm like, I'm the critical thinker in this Bitcoin world. I'm the one starting this first company. And I'm saying to myself, if I'm this person, how early am I? Like this is, if the smartest people haven't gotten into this thing yet, if I'm the third smartest person in this thing, there's a problem, this is too early. I realized very quickly, this is amazing. This is, this Bitcoin technology was just, it wasn't just the money aspect of it. Sure. The distributed computing potential that I realized so quickly when you had all you needed was these people. So Bitcoin at the time was a piece of software. There were no web wallets. There were no apps. There were no companies. Bitcoin was simply a piece of software you downloaded from, from Bitcoin.org. So she, Satoshi set up the website, built it. You download the software, and as soon as you downloaded it, it would stay on the bottom. It was a little piece of it was a square box that opened up on your screen. As soon as you download it, it would, it would take, depending on what year it was, but say it's 2011, 2012, it would sync. It would take an hour, maybe, not even, 30 minutes, and it would say connected to your peers and your nodes. It would have like a few dozen, maybe 50, 40, 30, a few hundred if you were running like a bigger computer or like a larger supercomputer or multiple computers connected. And all this would do is it would connect you, your computer to other computers and your computer processing would go towards verifying all the other transactions that were happening on this chain that you can view on your computer. Right. It was viewable on your computer. So you open up the file and you see in real time, hundreds of transactions, writing, 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 making this file like a little bit bigger. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. Cause when I send my, trans I can, and then also what it was doing, it was giving you free Bitcoin. So you're like, as long as you ran, like we're running this computer right now, as long as we did this in like one hour, you're probably getting like 40, 50 Bitcoin. Free Bitcoin. Oh yeah. Just for, for, for um, mining as you call it. And, yeah, and yeah. So the mining, the wallet and the distribution was all one of the same back then. Wow. It was the, yeah. It was the, and the transacting and everything you did was on this wallet. And there was a, so you download this wallet and I realized that, wow, this is like, if you can incentivize people with this money thing, 
you're like incentivizing people with this money, but it's also like transactions. It's like, this is cool. You it's like, and if I'm one of the very first people that know about it, like this is cool. Well, to show you how smart you are and how dumb I am in 2013 is when I bought my first Bitcoin and I bought a wallet. Actually, I was in Argentina. I think you set up a foundation down there for Bitcoin. I helped. Yeah. 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 So I was in Argentina at primarily a gold conference down there. It was a financial conference. And so I met some tech guy and we're chatting about, uh, you know, electronics and alternative money and all that sort of stuff. And he said, well, yeah, have you heard of Bitcoin? I go, no, what is? He said, what's it like a digital type currency? I go, well, how do you buy it? He goes, well, I'll show you. And he downloaded a wallet. I paid a hundred bucks. So I had a hundred bucks in my wallet, my digital wallet. And of course, then, I don't know, sometime later, I got too many apps on my phone and I deleted the app. <laughs> I had no idea. It happened. So you're, it so happened. you're, a, lot, you're a lot smarter than I am. So. No, because I would have saved all those Bitcoin from all those years ago if I was super uh, smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's so. So that was the aha moment. That's really incredible. That's really incredible. So, how did you actually end up in Sarasota? So the story continues that like uh, I end up going away for eighteen months and like right. leaving this small Bitcoin community. And I had a lot of like fans and and people that wrote to me every single day while I was in there and sent me books and letters. And I have the boxes still. I kept everything. It's really a beautiful thing. And I have to reopen that box one day and read all that stuff again. Yeah. But uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do for work or anything like that. I wasn't sure. Uh, I get released to Courtney's house. So I'm living with Courtney and her mom now. And um, I'm realizing that this small Bitcoin community that I left in 2014 is now 2016 digital currency community. We have the likes like Ethereum now two years old and all these other Litecoin and this we have conferences and I had the first right. Bitcoin conference six months before I got arrested. So I'm entering this new world that I didn't know existed beforehand. And um, this new world really wanted me back. And, and I started getting really good job offers and I started having a very quick opportunity to like, I realized that my experience being in Bitcoin so long combined with the humility training yep. I had gotten that time off proved to be like very good for my career. And I was able to like, start to do a lot of really cool work and things like that from home in Pennsylvania uh, where I'd gotten released to. And I realized that I wanted to um, move to maybe Austin. Austin right. looked really cool. Maybe that Austin. That makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Austin was like a really cool Bitcoin community. San Francisco was a Bitcoin community at the time. New York. I was like, I'm never going back to New York. New York betrayed me. New York like spit me out, you know, kicked me out, threw me to a prison in Pennsylvania, you know, out of all places. So I was like, can't go back there. Never again. Family is there. Demons are there. Yeah. Yeah. Move uh, on. Came down to Sarasota on vacation with Courtney's mom, Diane, because we just, I needed a place to, to you know, sit on the beach in Florida. Because when you're in jail, what do you think about doing all the time? At the time, I had like three jobs again. Uh, all these Bitcoin companies were offering me different opportunities. I bet. I had, yeah, I had. I was getting calls from a lot of media and press. So I was trying to harness that into the new businesses that I was starting at the time. I really wanted to get back into work and to, to prove to the community that I can like, you know, help it again. I felt like I had betrayed it. So came down here in Sarasota, fell in love with the, with the place, with this beautiful city, with the people down here, made some really good friends. And in like one week that we were on vacation and I was like, shoot, we got to move down here. Like, well, forget Austin. This place is amazing. <laughs> so we, three months later, we were here on a one-way train ticket with all of our stuff. Well, again, just for our listeners, I mean, Charlie and I met at a private club that uh, we're both members of. And I'll tell you a little background story because ba basically a 55 and above club. And I didn't so, know that. Well, I'm, it's not Don't legally. Tell me that. Not, not legally, not legally, but basically it is because it, it really serves, you know, double income, no kids, uh, yeah. grandma and grandpas. And, you know, anyways, it's just, it's just an older, older, uh, membership there. And so Charlie and, Sh and uh, Courtney come rolling in and I was actually uh, the head of the board at the time. And, uh, so they come rolling in and people are like, who are they? What, why do they want to join here? You know, like they're too young. And then kind of they kind of found out your background. And I was taking a couple of arrows there, like, 
what we want you're gonna let these these folks and i go at the time the club was going through some some tough times are like man this guy's gonna pay yeah well, you know what it was a win-win for both sides so it worked out well now the club's doing very well but it it, it was funny because um it, it was just it was just interesting and what i've always enjoyed meeting people that don't look like me they're not from my background they're from a diverse background and sure. uh you and Courtney come rolling in there. I said, you know, I already liked him. So that just gives Thank our you. listeners a little bit of a background, background there. And, uh, it's good it's, people it, like us. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, boy, we sure need that today, you know, but, uh, well, anyways, so let's, so, well, that's cool. How you get to Sarasota, the, um, Sarasota magazine did an article not too long ago on you and they claim that Sarasota is becoming a cryptocurrency hub for entrepreneurs. Is that true? I think so. I think that Florida in general is really has, has become a huge on uh, hub for, for entrepreneurs, but I would title that article differently and say Sarasota has breeded a new hub of crypto entrepreneurs. That's my copy mind on because i have my podcast so i'm always thinking about different you know titles and show notes like yourself um i would have said that because it's not like those a lot of the people like sure i moved down here so i but a lot of the folks had already been living here that became very successful crypto entrepreneurs uh, in the space just by right kind of the vibe that that sarasota has created have this like live and let live but but the seriousness at the same time well so what makes a town a hub because it, you know miami is um you know there's a lot of towns i mean there are entire countries like honduras that, that, that their national currency become bitcoin and whatnot so what what create what makes it a hub if you will i mean is it attracting the talent or is it you, you just building it up from nothing well, or i'll give you some examples of other hubs you have san diego austin yep. sarasota tampa region i would say the tampa sarasota region have become hubs um you have uh, a big community in Washington, D.C. You still have like um, not really San Francisco anymore. L.A. has an amazing – but uh, L.A. is the outlier. The, all those other cities are very similar to Sarasota in like their size and, and things like that. Charleston is is another one too. Um, there's a great community – I mean all over the world. Cities of our size have become hubs for two reasons. Miami, New York uh, – all the big cities of the world, London, Paris, very expensive to live there. Yeah. Uh, you're, it's a rat race. You're competing. It's not a, you want a smaller city where it's like your home base, your home base, especially if you're doing remote work, you want to be at a place that's like very consuming perfectly, but you're like a, you know, you can meet people. It's still like a small town feel. People in crypto are like so hyper in our computers and online and in the metaverse all the time. Sure. We crave those like very, important interactions, physical relationships. We crave that in the real world because we we take that we don't take that for granted. So in beach towns especially, it's a very like everyone's living by the day, celebrating sunset, you know, you're meeting a lot of great people. Everyone's coming here on vacation. Uh, you get a lot of that and you meet some you make great friends. Is it too much of a stretch to say that states and countries where there's a sense of more personal freedom, you're going to find more cryptocurrency enthusiasts there. Uh, especially after COVID. Yeah. You know, if it was undertones before, COVID allowed states, especially governors, to set the flags on what they think their states represent. And DeSantis did a wonderful job I would agree. Like he's he has been such a, a a fan of like, you know, he he has libertarian roots himself, although he can and won't admit it. So he's got great. Oh, maybe he does. I don't. Know. I haven't read and right, right. Things, but he's got great libertarian roots, and he is like such a defender of personal freedom and rights, but in a pragmatic way. So right. like, there's a line where it's like, where do you protect? Like he, protecting the he's. He's been like very, I'll give an example, like he's been very small government, pro personal choice. Government is like a service, not a ruler. But when it comes to protecting the elderly, he's like, hands down, government needs to be there for the elderly. Yeah. Like, 
And I never thought of it that way. And until I lived in Florida, I'm like, you know, I, I can't wait to be an old, an old a senior person in Florida because you want a government to protect us in a hyper, hyper way. Right, right. It, it, it's, it, it's a, you know, it's really like a three hour conversation to talk about, you know, the right political touch, if you will. The because right political you, touch. Yeah, yeah the right. Like because, you know, I've looked at the libertarian, you know, mantra and whatnot. Because our anarcho-capitalist, and I was a fan for many years of, you know, maybe the, one of the original, which was Doug Casey, who's down in Uruguay or Argentina now. But uh, there's kind of a group of those guys running around. They just oh, yeah. basically want complete personal freedom. But, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is you and I both live in a neighborhood. And when you're part of an HOA, you agree to give up a certain amount of your rights yeah. in order to live in that neighborhood. But it's the overreach, of course, that I think that many of the crypto enthusiasts out there would say, uh, no, I'm going to find some other place or, or this type of currency gives me more of the freedom that I'm craving. The crypto enthusiasts, I think in order to like, like we have some amazing cities like ours that run very, very efficiently. Right. We, low, we lowered our tax mileage or millage or whatever last year, our tax base, you know, went down here. It's like, what's crazy to think about in, in the world of inflation. Um, but most, let's be honest, most governments, 99% of governments, 99% of states, 99% of cities are, are corrupt, have graft, are not run efficiently, are not great right. places to live, have a lot of crime. You go to, I, I don't want to name drop some cities, but I travel to some cities for work. And it's like, you can't leave the one neighborhood. Right. It's dangerous. Like so many places, a lot of people are listening, they're probably nodding their heads. A lot of us moved here from those places. Uh, but at the same time, crypto enthusiasts realize that we want it. They want to experiment with different models that yep. could work better than what we have now. And in order yep. to experiment with those new models, we need to come from a place of like no government and, and zero. Like, give us a piece of land somewhere where we can just play around and experiment. That, but that's the mindset. If you, sure. someone literally, if a president said, "Hey, here's like a piece of land. You guys can run your own little cities in your experimental way," every libertarian would go. Like seasteading, it would be great because that's really all we want. Yeah. And that's what New Hampshire, the Free State Project, was like, hey, if we get enough people to live here, yep. we could have a voting block where we could actually maybe have government back off a little bit and we could experiment on our own. It's a right. great idea. I totally love that idea. Let's figure it out. I don't know how to make that work. Personally. Yeah. In some, in some regards, Hong Kong was like that years ago because there's yeah. a sovereign city, obviously, in China. And now we we see what's happening. They were supposed to have a fifty year leash before they became a part of the. Got so good, China wanted it back. What yeah, I guess so. But you that's give your the, friend a gift, and you know, you want it back. We humans, unfortunately, are eternally fractured, and uh, it just it just doesn't go that way. Well, so so I guess then we need to move up to today. What's happening in crypto? Which you recently had a crypto in crisis event. What was that all about? I mean, it's average. It, it's actually. Uh, timely because of what's happening in the crypto uh, arena right now. Yeah. Um, I started the the crypto investor network with a company called Investor Place. And it's been for the past two, three years. And it's been a wonderful uh, uh, career to have to be in research and education. And for our members, we put out tons of uh, research uh, on different projects. We put out our, our specific coin recommendations you know, what prices we think they're, you know, these cryptos are valued at, which scams to stay away from. And it's what I've been doing for so long. And it's really great to like be able to reach a great thing. I record a lot of masterclasses and I put out a crypto in crisis. The moral of the story is everyone who's gotten wealthy in crypto that you see today in all in the bull market, every company that is successful today from Coinbase to Gemini to every single one has gotten successful during bear markets. Sure. Bear markets are the time to build. Bear markets are the time to buy. Of course, buying the right things because there are more scams now than there were ever. And that's one of the things I try to put out some some I have a free I have a report that I just wrote on like how to tell which scams to avoid and you get that as soon as you know you could join. I think I'm I, it's free to join as a member of my thing now. Where where, where do they get that? If you go to um uh, investorplace.com and click crypto on the top gotcha. there. Investorplace, gotcha. it's, it's right there. Um, and then, and then, so now's the time. And we've been doing, we've had this portfolio for, for over two years now. 
I ran an, I ran same type of a thing called the awakening right before the bull market hit in 2020. Anyone who was a member was able to get in during that bear market before COVID. We started with invest with invest with with uh, in the CIM before COVID. So we were like preaching to people the bull market in crypto is coming, and I'm preaching the same thing now. It's but it's it's about dollar cost averaging. It's about getting in, not trying to like catch the falling knife. Right. You know, if anyone ever says like now is the time to buy, like you stay away from those people. It's it's the it's, there's always a good time as long as you know that like yeah what to avoid and what to stay away from. But, but that's that's always the key in any investment. I mean, yeah. for years I invested in junior mining shares, Canadian. I was always going up to. Um, Vancouver or Toronto, whatnot. I was again a big yeah. fan of some of the some of the the gold guys and whatnot. Of course, I was always mining them, so I invested very heavily in copper and zinc, you know, gold, silver, all that sort of jazz. And that was always the pitch. You know, you have this penny shares being traded on the pink sheets, right? And so it's being able to know: Are you really getting something that the value is there, rather than you just buying into moose pasture? Exactly. It's, ne it's never. It's it's never going to become. It's never become a mind, and actually, in the mining mining space, one in three thousand anomalies end up becoming a mine. But so that's the, but that's the real key, and I couldn't agree more. Now that it's pretty much collapsed, you know, this, the 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 value of, of various uh, cryptos out there. That's the key, though, because if you don't know the value of something, the price is ir irrelevant. Exactly. If you don't know the value, the prices is. It's completely irrelevant. And I was yeah. able to, to, to create a lot of that value over the years and to do a lot of just fun things in the space. And so we have that. Um, I'm, I'm on the podcast all the time. We are, um, we've been producing, we made like two films last year and that's why I was out at the, at the Cannes Film Festival, which was a lot of fun. And what else am I working on? Oh, I started a Florida based VC fund, which is a lot of fun, a lot more work being a VC than I thought it was. Gonna be. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. I want to get in. I wanted to get into that a little bit here, but you and I, before we uh, hit record, we're talking about Terra and Luna. These are a couple of the currencies that I call them current or the cryptos that, that have really dumped. Give us a, a quick background on that. So those, those, you know, cryptocurrencies, uh, where we're very, we're, we're we're almost like too good to be true type situations. Yeah, Terra was was a, a a company that was offering their cryptocurrency UST, which is a, a, like a stable coin yeah. that was supposedly backed one to one with a dollar, and they were offering like twenty percent annual returns. A lot of people in the crypto space knew that it was not uh, uh, viable in a long term business, but they got very very big very quickly, and all it took was enough press of the media writing about, hey, what happens if this collapses? And then it actually, everyone just had to pull their money out at the same time and it collapsed. Right. Uh, you would, another example of like a crypto Ponzi scheme, if you will, which happens every year. Our industry has a knack of being able to like produce these crazy scams. But then at the same time, we regulate, we regulate them away. We don't rely on like, outside government or regulatory bodies, our markets are efficient and these things implode. Yes, people lose money, but then a lot of people make money by absorbing the losses and figuring out how to turn those failed businesses into new ones because those customers are still there. And so, you know, pass from Mount Gox to Bitfinex. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure you've had this a bazillion con, uh, conversations over this, but, uh, but isn't that kind of like the rub until there's more regulatory oversight to kind of provide, it almost defeats the the purpose. More regulatory oversight, but it's, it's hard. You know why I've learned with regular with regulatory with regulation is that we we live in an amazing country with great regulations. Right. But crypto is a global thing, and you're going to have as long as there's that one country, there, you, we can kick them out of our financial system. They're still going to find a way in. Like Russia, we've put millions of sanctions on them. Yep. We've kicked them out of SWIFT, arguably. Like That was the dumbest in. thing. That was the dumbest thing. Kicking them out of SWIFT. It just drove me nuts. I just don't nuts. know what the solution is, but I can talk yeah. about the problem. It, you know, the, the global financial system is broken. Right. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. It's unfair. And it's it benefits those who are close to the money printer. 
and the Federal Reserve. And you right. don't think the senators and the congressmen and women are right now buying shares of things based on the Federal Reserve making their decisions, inside information? Certainly. They make infi- inside information and inside of trading illegal, but they're the ones doing it. Yep. What do you want me to tell you? It's just like a, a completely rigged system. And we're, it's a casino out there. And we're the ones, you know, all of our friends and family getting priced out of homes that they can't afford anymore and things like that. The beauty of one of the best things I fell in love with Bitcoin was that when I understood it as like the inflation rate was preset for 30 years or for longer, forever, until the 20 year 2150, I was like, it's like the Federal Reserve putting all of, put, it's like the Federal Reserve putting all of, you know, the, the, all of the, the market manipulation they're doing now on autopilot and, th- and throwing away the keys. Yeah. I was like, I really like that because yep. you can like build around that. You can build around an inflation rate. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen then going forward over the next couple of years? You, you think it's hard. It's always hard to tell whether you bottomed or not, but I mean, do you go back up to the 60,000 level or some of these other coins go to coin heaven or? The, the crypto fundamentals have not changed. In fact, all that's happened is, is there's user growth, yeah. blockchain growth, metric growth, new businesses, VC funding. Industry is growing by leaps and bounds. Right. If price was indicator about the size of the growth of the industry and the businesses and the users and stuff like that, the price would be Bitcoin and all the other cryptos would be worth a lot of money. Yeah. The price prices get crazy when people have a uh, when people are okay with the world around them, knowing that like, hey, everything is going right. I can invest and get involved in like future speculative technologies that are right. not there yet. Nothing in crypto is there yet. This is all future stuff. But at the same time, we have this massive macro Federal Reserve situation. That like the stock markets, our mortgage rates, our credit card interest rates, the painter, everyone, everything, you know, yacht club dues, everything is based on these damn guys in a room having a secret meeting, telling a few people and then releasing it to us last. Right. That's what's happening. So that needs to stop. And until that's over. We all just better go to the beach. And it's that it's that decentralized aspect that you really that you really love about the crypto space, the uh, decentralized financing aspect, which kind of brings us up to then the Cannes Film Festival, which is one of the reasons you were there was to talk about DeFi, helping to bring crypto finance solutions to the independent film space. First off, how was Cannes? Dude, south of France is so beautiful. I've never been there. Yeah. Oh my God. It, it, it just France in general and the, the French people, they get a bad rap on the global stage, but they're just such sweet, sweet, hospitable people that, that just are make amazing food. Um, it's funny because the Spanish think that the French took their food, carried it over the mountains to France. The Italians think that the French stole their food, carried over the mountains to Italy. It's like everyone <laughs> thinks that they took it, but all it's all amazing, you know. It's a big foodie, right? Um, the festival was tremendous. I mean, being able to just interface with filmmakers and celebrities that you grew up watching, and everyone's just meeting and hanging out, having a good time. Uh, yeah, give us give us a perspective of that. So, so first off, how many days is it? Do you see a bunch of videos there, or were you just there to network and to share your your knowledge about crypto and how some of these filmmakers can use that to do their videos, or do their films? So, the Cannes Film Festival is a festival in every sense of the word that takes place over ten days and literally takes over the whole city of Cannes. Uh-huh. And there is, uh, it, this city was built to just be like European elegance and they've been hosting festivals forever. And what it is, is you have uh, right in the center of the city, right on the waterfront, on the marina, you have this beautiful palais, which is this festival hall, palace. And you have multiple level exhibitor halls. And then attached to it is multiple theaters with red carpets and stairs. And the whole city is again built for like, red carpet events and, and watching films. So you get, um, I went as an exhibit, as an exhibitor 
I uh, work with a, a sales and distribution company called Glasshouse Distribution. And we were there to sell the foreign rights to our films, but also potentially buy and, and finance new films. Uh, so we had exhibitor passes and we had a booth. And through that, we were able to get uh, exhibit. There's a certain like tiered system, but exhibitors are at the top of the tier. And you get a certain amount of tickets that you get to. You can go to as many films as you want, actually. You get in before any the public can, can get uh, in. So we went to premieres like Top Gun. And we got to see all that great movie. Like, the creator of Squid Game and that lead actor made his, his film. I forgot the name of it. Uh, Hunt. Yeah. And we went yep. to his premiere and it was amazing. Um, we got to meet with some amazing people and, and, um, you're always wearing tuxedos every well, day. You're always dressing nice. And that's, that's the funny thing because I, because I caught you on Facebook. I'm like, Hey, where's you're, Charlie yeah. Canfield? He's in his tuxedo. You're always wearing a student tuxedo every day from morning till night. You're doing meetings in the daylight at night till, till the wee hours till four or 5 a.m. in the morning. Everyone's hanging out on the lawn of Yo, the man. Grand Hotel or the Hotel Majestic. And everyone's just hanging out interf in tuxedos, getting out of a film. You're walking everywhere. So you don't have to ever get in a car. Yeah. The whole city's walkable. You're able to get and have an amazing dinner at four o'clock in the morning. Time doesn't matter. Yeah. You sleep when you can. You know, the whole idea is to is to just try to make films happen and move well, the world forward. I'll tell you a funny thing about your photograph that I saw on Facebook. Uh, of course, you're in a tuxedo. Courtney's all glammed up, looking looking like a Hollywood starlet and whatnot. And there's one picture of you standing. You're, you're there together. You're looking over your right shoulder at her. She's looking at you with loving eyes. And you know, the first thing that popped into my head was, that guy doesn't have one gray hair in his beard. I was so ticked off. <laughs> I feel like I do when I trim it, though. But right now, it's red. It turns red. You I definitely have gray hairs, though. Yeah. Well, you get them eventually. You know. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit. So, what were the independent film makers there? What was their interest in using crypto to get their their video their films made? What were, what were those conversations like? A lot of people were still revolving around nfts and and non-fungible tokens and i don't yeah. know yeah and i don't know what that answer is yet that's not where like the route i was going at i was always about bitcoin and crypto being the technology to remove the middlemen and having a very transparent and efficient real-time like ledger system that can pay out dividends and assign rights and sub rights and referral rights and different type of percentages to different people all in via smart contracts, all right. on-chain and things like that. Right, blockchain stuff. Yeah. yeah, so I look look at like the film world is like you have this film that goes through so many progressions of stages and has all these attachments of people that have all these rights attached and like certain percentages and loans and those like different distribution things attached to these like, uh, and it's not transparent at all. Mm. There's a lot of shady accounting that happens. And it's not by like any one person doing it on purpose, I don't think. But then at the end of the day, like the filmmakers, the ones who are putting all their effort are soulless because they just lose their soul because it's so hard. They work their butt off to make these projects. And if they finally make it above water, right when they get their head above water, someone's going to snatch it and give them maybe like 50 grand. Mm. It's like, Filmmakers don't make the money. You have to already have money, have a good mentor, or like work in the business side of the in film industry and know people in order to like actually make money in film and TV. That's the secret. Same thing with acting. The best actors are the ones who went out and stopped becoming an actor, learned how to produce, make their own things. They learned how to like have their niche. Or learn the business side first and then re-enter acting from the business side once you have an angle. That's the only way to do it. The world of, of auditioning, that is just, that's like a cattle call, man. That is not going to work anymore in our world. I feel bad for people who are auditioning nowadays. I'm like, that is just not going to work anymore. Now, you, you, but of course, uh, Courtney's done a couple of movies and, and she is looking to break in that way. Or you're going to go in a different direction with Courtney was able to break through because she started utilizing relationships of people that were meeting along the way. Right. And she was starting to meet all these filmmakers and, and representing herself as an actor. She represented herself. Hey, I'm an actor. I'm a voiceover artist. 
uh, people look at me, Charlie's wife, I'm living in a shadow, but I'm a lot more than that. I do a lot of things. I'm my own person. And she came from a position of strength. And she came from a position of like, I'm my own person. Good for her. Uh, husbands need to, we need to support that more. Uh, and, and it's great. Uh, I don't have a choice. She's just a stronger person than I am. Just joking. I love her. <laughs> she's, she's great. But I have so much respect for her for doing that. And it worked. She, she, we met some people and that, that guy knew this other guy who had written this dance script needed an actor who can dance and act uh, at the same time. And one thing led to another and that film ended up getting made and she had an amazing breakout role in that. Cool. Called Ask cool. Me to Dance. So it's like- What's it's the name again, please? Called Ask Me to Dance. Ask Me to Dance. Good. Good, good. Ask Me to Dance. Well, I would imagine you get pitched all the time. I mean, you just probably a blur of emails of people wanting you to get involved with their- Oh yeah. Technology. And is the movie industry something you've chosen to focus on? Is it going to be a major focus of yours or I guess kind of what's next for, for Charlie? Yeah, the movie industry, I'm very, I've always loved being a content creator in a hands-on way. Right. That's something that I've always felt that I could bring to market personally. So like whether it's film, TV, my podcast, any type of content that I've ever done, starting yeah. up companies and running them, uh, I don't enjoy doing all the time, although I like jumping into p- companies that I've invested in and like helping fix problems. Uh, I have a great team of VC partners now. So if I'm getting pitched, I can actually like, if it's something that I'm interested in, I can hand it off to my business partners now and we can get pitched with multiple people on the Zoom and we can do a lot of crazy things. But making films, podcasts, it's something that I'm very passionate about and I supervise in a very hands-on way. Well, that's very cool. Well, Charlie, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Is there anything else you want to leave with us or do you want us to go ahead and sign off? If you like hearing the sound of my voice, please come listen to my show, untoldstories.com. I would love uh, to have you guys. Untoldstories.com. I listened to, I've listened to several versions of it and, and you have some really fascinating people on there that I definitely would not run into on a, in the crowds I run into. So I think it's a great show. Well, listen, everybody, thank you for for listening to Charlie Shrim and uh, Charlie, I look forward to having you back in, in a while and find out what's going on with Courtney and finding out what other movies you guys are making. Thank you so much for having me on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for stopping by. I sure hope you enjoy listening to our interviews as much as we do providing them. If so, would you do me a little favor? Go to sarasotastories.co and enter in your email. That way you'll get notifications of all upcoming episodes. Also, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And remember, no matter where you go, to listen, learn, and connect. Connect.